So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, um, we continue in our study of the book of Ephesians. We come to the, the, the second half, the final portion of chapter 3. I forgot my clicker. Is my clicker there? Oh. Thanks, sweetie. <clears throat> we look to the second half of, uh, or the last part of Ephesians chapter 3, and we get to Paul's great prayer. Um, Prayer, uh, prayer is essential in Scripture, obviously, but what is delightful is to consider some of the models that we have of prayer throughout Scripture. Whether it's a great prayer of Daniel and Daniel 9, right? Whether it's um, obviously Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer, John 17, right? Prayer of Ezra, the, prayer of Paul, the prayers of Paul, the Psalms, right? Um, there are so many models of prayer, and they contain in and of themselves uh, wonderful theological concepts that we often neglect when our prayers have just dwindled down to, Lord, I need this, I need this, and would you do this? Right? When we approach God more in the sense of, and, and again, I'm not in any way insinuating that we shouldn't come to the Lord in need. I think much of the prayer and many of the things prayed for are needs that we, that the, you know, the, the saint is praying for, and we should pray for the needs of one another. But what we're saying is there are things that are encapsulated in our thoughts when we pray, because what we think about God and what we think about what he has done, that should bleed out into the way that we talk to him, the way that we talk about one another, the way that we care for one another as we take one another before the throne of grace, asking for God's help and, um, and guidance. It, the, the only thing I'll leave us in terms of um, anything else I might say about uh, the prayer of Paul in uh, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, is just this, that we've already said that Paul was about to pray, right? All the way back in verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Right? And the rest of it sounds like he's going to begin his prayer. And then we have all these verses that's kind of a diversion. Like he, he gets sidetracked into thinking about all that God has done in, um, in the wondrous mystery of bringing Gentiles and Jews and all kinds of weird and wonderful people together in the body of Christ. That we are bound together because of the blood of Christ, because we have the same forgiveness, the same gospel, the same salvation because of the same Savior. And that wonder, the wonder of the church, is what is leading him into this prayer. It's a prayer for the church. And it's a prayer not just for the Ephesian church, which it certainly is, but it's a model of how we should be praying for church, period for one another, period. What we should be desiring, and what we should be desiring is that the church would grow, but not necessarily in number. Here we go. Not necessarily number, but look at two, three, and four. We should be praying for spiritual strength. We should be praying for love. We should be praying for fullness. This is the experience of the gospel in the members of a healthy church, and this is what Paul prays for more than anything else. I'm certain that Paul prayed for individuals, right? Elder so-and-so amongst the Ephesians and, and how he's having a difficult job at his work. and stuff like, I'm, I'm sure Paul prayed for all those practical, temporary, and necessary and good things that he would lift up in supplication before the Lord. But the model of prayer that we find in Scripture, as he prays for people, is that there is something to live for. 
There's something to delight in. There's a reason why we gather together as a community, as a body, as a church family. And let those things be the motivation for why we pray. I mean, let those things, let the gospel be the emphasis, right, that leads us to praying gladly, thoroughly, lovingly for one another and the body of Christ. Well, let's read this passage, um, starting in verse 14 through 21, and then we'll pray, and then we'll try to unpack what I think the Lord has given to us for this morning's message. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even as uh, we prepare ourselves to hear from your word, as we contemplate, Lord, um, what it means to pray for the redeemed, the body of Christ that you have granted to us, that as we pray for one another, as we pray for the church, that we might be reminded again of how good you are in the rescue of sinners. And Lord, let that bleed even into our time around the Lord's table, where the redeemed remember by way of taking of the bread and taking of the juice, Lord, that uh, Christ paid the ultimate price to rescue us, to make us his own, and to bring us into his church family. So we praise you, ask that you would bless the rest of our Lord's Day together, that we would honor your name, and that we would grow in faith and faithfulness, and that we grow in love, that we care for one another as Christ our Savior has exemplified to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we begin, and this is our outline, right? The verse 14 and 15 is more like Paul's introduction. This is how he prays, this is why he prays. It's his motivation to pray. And then the substance of his prayer comes in verses 16 through the end. It's about praying for strength for the church, praying for the love of Christ to be well known in the church, and praying for fulfillment, a satisfaction, a fullness that comes only from their relationship with the Lord. So let's start with the simple thing, and that's um, motivation. What, what motivates Paul to this prayer? And look at verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. I'll say two things about that first verse, a short verse that explains the why of his prayer at this moment. But he says one thing that is interesting, and that's that he bows his knee before the Father. And you might think, right, well, what's the big deal? Like, you know, like, you know, we pray sitting down sometimes. We typically, when we pray, right, we put our hands together in some way. Some of you guys do this, right? Some of you guys do this, right? Whatever your, some, some of the most holy ones will lift their arms, right? Whatever. You pray with your eyes closed, your arms lifted, etc. Um, and that, that's not weird. In fact, much of that is common even throughout the Old Testament into the New but what is unknown to us, or what might, we might find kind of unusual when we look closely, is that the common posture of prayer was to stand. 
right? So that when you come to the outer courts, right, uh, by the prayer wall uh, near the Jerusalem temple, how do you pray? Well, you don't get on your knees. You stand, right? When you come into a congregation and someone leads in prayer, they stand. And I know we do that because, you know, people are walking up. And so if they lead in song or whatever, they usually don't sit or kneel, right? And so standing was the common posture for prayer. In fact, in Scripture, there's a few times that we find someone on the ground or on their knees. And in those moments, there is tremendous humility, right, or earnestness. Either they are suffering, or someone is suffering, or something is going wrong, or something is so heavy that it drives them to this, uh, this unusual, emotionally charged, humble earnestness in prayer. So when Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, he's saying that not because he's saying, hey, so you know what, just, just to make it a little more poetical, you know? I close my eyes really hard, right, when I pray. He's not just emphasizing something that's common. He is saying that this is a a humbling thing. It's a significant thing. It's an emotionally charged thing. He is saying, I take a posture that, that emphasizes how strong this is. And he does that. I bow my knees, he says, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul has a passion to pray for them, specifically as he comes before the father of all families. See, I put it that way, right? Before the father of family, point B, because what I'm trying to emphasize is um, the idea of family, right? Uh, Not not, um, as a particular family, but the concept of family itself. In the Greek, the term that is translated family there is associated with the word for father. So Paul is making a play on words. It's like saying father and the fathered, right? Like, like he's kind of connecting the dots here, and he's saying he's the father from whom every, right, fathered people in heaven and on earth is named. It's emphasizing both that God is the heavenly father, the creator of anyone that is that is a being, right? Every family in heaven would include those saints, certainly, that are there, but also would include the angels that are there. Every family that is on earth, that would be ours, our individual families, our church family. The point is simply this, that we have a sense as beings, right? Now, not as simply animals, even though animals kind of have that sense too, right? They kind of group up. They kind of hang together, right? People do too, the, the term that is translated family can be translated in other contexts, clan, right? Or people group, right? The idea is that you are a tribe, a clan, a group of people that have a similar identity that ties you to one another. And Paul's point is, where does that come from? That comes from the heavenly father who has implanted that into you so that you have a sense of the commonness of those that are fathered, that those have a commonness, that they draw together. We love our own. We love our own. Um, Arkin Hughes is one of my preaching heroes. Um, just, he's not necessarily the greatest preacher you've ever heard. He's an excellent preacher, but um, just because of uh, his, his uniqueness. You know, his, uh, um, he was one of those kids that, that in, 
in a middle school decided because his father had died when he was young and uh, he was raised by his mother and his father's uh, two sisters. So he had two aunts and a mom. They tried to raise him right in the things of the Lord. And the first father figure in his life was his youth pastor. And he decided immediately that's what he's going to He's going to become a pastor. And he did, right? But even as he's doing that, middle school and high school, he is so deathly nervous of public speaking that he would hold like his announcement sheet. And he, this is, I, I heard this directly from him. He was saying that, you know, and he would say, read these, these six announcements in front of his nine friends that he's known almost his whole life. And it would be shaking and his voice would be quivering. He was that nervous. He, he was not gifted as a natural orator, etc. And that's what made him great. That's what made him an excellent pastor preacher because he didn't rely on his own abilities, but he relied on just hard work and doing the best he can. Well, this is not about his preaching. It's about his life as a grandparent. He tells a story about how he and Barbara will get together and uh, they'll talk about the kids and they'll talk about their grandkids. They talk about their lives and how things are going for each of the kids, what kind of things will be happening. And he says there's a natural paternal, maternal bragging, right? They're like bragging to each other about their own grandkids. Yeah, don't you think that kid's, yeah, he's great. He's going to be great at this. And, you know, they congratulate on each other how brilliant their grandkids are. I mean, this is like normal grandparent kind of things, right? And his whole point is, he says, we especially love our own. Our, our own family, our own grandkids, our own children, they are our joy, and they know it, right? So it is with Paul as he realizes that the reason why he is bowing his knee in earnestness before the Heavenly Father is because he has given, the Heavenly Father has given to him and to all those that have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given them a church, a church family, Listen, you cannot be a member of this church and not understand that we place a great emphasis on the meaning of membership. You can't watch as we induct members and we walk through kind of all of these different things that we do and think that we place a low, right, a low bar for church membership. We believe that if you're a church, you're family. And for many of us, that is a closer connection than our earthly families. Right? This is what... Paul is understanding. And so when he says, I bow my knee, there's an earnestness, right? There's a reason to bow. Um, and I do that before the father of family. He's trying to say that whether it's on heaven or whether it's on earth, right? That the concept of family is invented by our heavenly father. These are the people he has given you. That's his emphasis. And wasn't that his emphasis just before this prayer? Earlier in chapter three, we saw last week that Paul is, he is, he is hitting hard on the concept that this is the church, united, different, Gentiles here. There is not a concept in Paul's writings or in the New Testament of solo Christians. The only solo Christian is a person going on, on missions, right, to a place where there isn't a church yet. And the emphasis for that individual is to underline the word yet. It, there's always church. If you're not a member of a church, you don't have to be a member of this church. We're not, we're not tooting our own horn. We're not the only church in town or near you. But you need to be a member of a church. In the same way, you need to relate to other people. And other people have to be able to pour into you, right? Both exhortation, rebuke, and love, and joy, and commonness, and prayer. I mean, this is, is the New Testament not filled with one another commands? How is that fulfilled in your life? 
and it should be within the body of believers that God has given to you, your church family. So you get that? Verse 14 and 15 is just speaking of what it is that has motivated Paul to pray. So that's just kind of why we're here. And then we get to the, to the second point, which begins the first of three main emphases in Paul's prayers. This is the content of his prayer. And he begins by praying, praying for strength. Look at verse 16 there. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul begins then with the content of, uh, of uh, praying for these Christians that they would be strengthened according to his glory, according to God's glory. Look at verse 16 again. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The, the, the thing you want to take notice of whenever you see it in the, in the scriptures is, that, is that, that phrase, according to, according to. Right? There's a huge difference um, of giving or being generous according to your wealth. You know, if you're a wealthy person and you give according to your wealth, there's a huge difference between that and giving out of your wealth. Right? You could be a billionaire and then you give someone five bucks. You know, Hey, uh, do you mind uh, getting me some coffee at Starbucks? Here's five bucks. And you'd be like, dude, this barely covers like regular coffee. Like Starbucks is expensive, bro, right? But then he might say, here, here's five bucks and here's 500 bucks for you taking the time to do that for me. And we might think, okay, that's kind of excessive. That's kind of a lot. Starbucks is just right here, right? And that's out of, right? Generosity out of, I'm sorry, that's generosity according to his wealth, right? Whereas the other, here's like three bucks, bring back the change, right? That, that's just, he might be kind of giving, but that's just out of his wealth. It is God's glory to be connected and to give out of the wealth, the riches of his glory. And so it is according to his glory, uh, on the scale and style of the wealth of his glory. That's what one New Testament scholar, Moore, says, right? It is in an appropriate proportion to how wealthy God is in his glory He says, according to that wealth, that wonder, may he grant to you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner inner man. See, this is an interesting thing. So Paul is asking for strength. That's our our point B, right? He is asking that, that these individuals might be strengthened with power in the inner being. Right? We'll discuss that in just a sec. But I want us to understand that he is saying that he is praying for that according to the wealth of God's glory. And do you remember in Ephesians in particular, God's glory has been strongly identified in two areas. One, his power. So that's what's happening here, right? Let let the glory of his power and the wealth of that, out of that wealth, according to that wealth, Lord, would you strengthen through power, right, these Christians in their inner being. But the second element of God's glory in the book of Ephesians, if we look at Ephesians 1, remember there's that repeated phrase in that great barakah, right? That great word of blessing. That all of this, right? Our salvation, the plan of God to call us before the foundation of the world, our redemption in Christ, his death on the cross for us, the sealing of our lives and our eternity in the power of the Holy Spirit, all of that was done to the praise of his glorious grace. Glorious tied to his infinite mercy in his redemptive plan for us. So if you take that, what Paul is saying is, is Lord, 
according to how wealthy your grace and your power is for our salvation, would you strengthen them? Don't just rescue them. Rescue them and then strengthen them, enable them, give them strength in the inner being. By the way, you notice the abundance of terms for power here, right? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, right? That's the first word, and it means to be, it's the word for strength that isn't that commonly used in the New Testament. It means to become powerful, and, and in the passive, in the passive um, voice, it, it means to, to have been strengthened, to be empowered. Paul's prayer is, Lord, you are infinitely powerful and gracious. Would you make these Christians, right, powerful as well? Powerful with power. Look at the next term, with power. That's our common word for for power, dunamis. It just means with ability or capacity. It's like the power in a battery. It has potential power. Would Would you empower them with the kind of power through your spirit in their inner being? See, he piles on terms to say that I would desire them to be strengthened with power in the inner man. Inner being, inner person, is synonymous with the New Testament concept of the heart. It is the core essence of who you are. Not, not who you are trying to become, you know. Sometimes you go into an environment where you know some people, you don't know other people, you're trying to impress, like maybe like a job interview or a first date or something. And you are yourself, I imagine, but you're a slightly different version of yourself, right? You're yourself a little bit cleaner, a little bit more polite, right? Seeming a little bit more intelligent, Right? That, that's the kind of, you put on some amount of airs that is not exactly and precisely you. Now, the inner man is the opposite of that. It is you at your core being. It is at the status when nothing else is happening, when your mind is free to wander and you have nothing to do in that moment. What is it that you think about? What is it that you contemplate? What drives you to do the things that you do, etc.? That's your inner being. It's where your motives come out of. It's where your emotions flow out of. It's where your perspective, your worldview, as well as your particular take on everything in life. That's where it flows out. That's your inner being. That's your heart. And Paul's praying that the God of glorious grace and infinite mercy, as well as the God of all power, might give you strengthening ability and capacities right there, right in your inner man. So that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul talks about the outer self and the inner self, he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, listen, this outer man is decaying. I was kind of laughing at Gary because he has to wear reading glasses to read our member's covenant on his tablet, which I'm pretty sure you could just do this, right? And I think he, <laughs> I, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, that's what it seems like you might be able to do. But I, I'm laughing at Gary, but at the same time, I do too. Like, you know, like, like I can't see distance well because they have to correct. My left eye is undercorrected. You know, I'm wearing contacts, right? Because I can't, I can't read. Like right now, this is fuzzy. So I have to like watch like that. And so the kids used to make fun of it. They're just used to it now. Whenever I'm reading something on my phone, it's like it's gotten further and further away. I'm going to have to get one of those extenders pretty soon and hold my phone out so I can read. 
I don't know what that is. It's, it's just old eyes. Our outer man is decaying. And listen, unless you're under the age of, I don't know, 16, right? Because if you're under 16, I think your outer man is not yet decaying. Like you're still kind of growing, right? But the rest of us, once you get about 18, maybe 22, I don't know, right? Then it's all downhill, bro. All down here. The outer man will be decaying. That's normal. But the inner man, if we are spiritually connected to the power source that is our heavenly father, if we're connected in the ministry that is the family of God, that is the church, if we're connected in the purposefulness of taking the gospel and wanting to see others know the glory of Jesus Christ, if we're connected to those spiritual things and empowered by God to pursue those things, our inner man is renewed. It's still growing, even though the outer man is decaying. Isn't that the apostle? I mean, I just quoted him from 2 Corinthians, and by the time we get to the chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he has a litany of all the stuff that he's endured. The torments, the torture, the 39 lashes, like all, all the, he has suffered. Uh, one commentator says that, that we do not know in church history a man who bore more physical scars right, for the cause of the gospel than the apostle Paul. And that's the stuff he's calling light momentary affliction, right? This is just temporary as far as he's concerned because the inner man is renewed. Doesn't that sound like what we want? Isn't that what we're looking for? I mean, we're we're not sitting around hoping for a dying, right, light. Like, oh, yeah, give me some of that dying stuff. Like, that's what I've been looking for, right? I need, to, I need to add some more depressive stuff into my life. I need more purposelessness, right? Don't give me purpose. That stuff is too strong, right? Give me, give me non-purpose. Give me nothingness. It's the opposite. We want to be empowered. And he says, and he prays, that they would be empowered in the inner man, right? And here's point C. Through the Spirit and for Christ. Let me read verse 16 um, through um, 18 there. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one that orchestrates all of this empowerment. He's the one that seals us until the day of our full redemption. He's the one that renews us. He's the one that opens our eyes. He's the one that makes us stronger. And whatever strength we are praying for, it will be a work of the Holy Spirit in us because he is the power. He's not the Holy Spirit of influence, right? Where he's like, come on, Nam, do better. Come on, please, right? He's the Holy Spirit of promise. He's the Holy Spirit of power. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the means by which we are transformed, where we receive capacities, where we, where we grow into areas that we could not be comfortable or find natural or find even to be sensible when we were unbelieving souls. Going to church? Hearing more about God? Praying for others? Sharing the gospel? That's like, what? Why do, why do you guys do that? And it's like, dude, I get it. If I wasn't a believer, I wouldn't be doing that stuff. But it's because the Holy Spirit, his indwelling and empowering, transforming, and life-giving nature, this is, this, he is the one, he is the being that is strengthening us in the inner man. It, it requires of us that we are spiritual, connected to the Spirit, 
right? That's what I mean by spiritual, that we are connected to the Spirit regularly by the ministry of the Word, by hearing from His Scriptures, by singing God's praise, right? And singing spiritual songs and hymns. And that's, that's why we have a worship time together corporately where we're singing about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. That's normal. That's natural. That's what Christians do. Through the Spirit and also for Christ indwelling. Look at verse 17, the first part. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word for dwell here is a little bit different from the word to sojourn. Right, The difference between dwelling and sojourning is sojourning is when someone sublets in your home. Right, um, Dwelling means that they've permanently moved in. It's an interesting point because it is just true that doesn't Christ already indwell us when we come to faith in him? He does. Right, He comes to have his place in our souls, in our hearts, in our inner being. So when Paul is saying, I'm praying that, that through the Spirit, you would be strengthened in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I think he's talking about an indwelling that, that, that reminds us, that informs us that Christ belongs here. The point is that if Christ has settled into the home that is our hearts, into our inner being, then what that means is that he's the center of our lives. He, he lives literally where we invent our motivations. He lives literally where we think and exercise our minds to decide what we want to do in our lives. He lives in the center of our thoughts, our feelings, our motivations, our drives. And so I think his point is that let Christ dwell there, transform you there in the inner being. Not oppressively, not overbearingly, not as one that would lord it over you, but affectionately and lovingly. Why do I say that? Because I keep thinking of Matthew 11, 27 to 30. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says a statement of great intimacy and authority. Me and the Father, we're like that. And I bring others to the Father, right? He has that authority. But then the very next thing he says in Matthew 11, verse 28, is, so then come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is life. You get what Jesus is saying? He is saying, saying yes, I have all authority. I could command the angels, and I'm asking you to come and find that I love you, and that by affection and kindness, I will rule over you. See, what do we mean practically when Paul says, I am praying that you be strengthened in the inner man through the Spirit and for the indwelling of Christ? I think what Paul means is there is a spiritual maturity that is to set upon these Christians in such a way that the ministry of the Spirit and the indwelling influence of, of, of Jesus Christ in their soul keeps transforming the way that they see things. So that the strengthening for life and for the inner man is that they leverage that which is most significant and important and beautiful and excellent. And they begin to extract from their own souls that which is unhelpful, which is worldly, which is temporary and selfish. 
He said, well, how does a Christian become the power of God through the working of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ? That's the gospel. And so Paul's not praying for something that's so unusual and weird. He's saying, I am praying for the very thing that is the intention of God, the Father, through Jesus the Son, and through the enabling power of his Holy Spirit. He's saying all of this right, is done and accomplished because of who, he, who God is for us. This is what it looks like. Remember, we just walked through chapter one, God's great plan of redemption from beginning, right, the beginning of time to the end of the age. And in chapter two, how we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, but by grace and by grace alone, right, by the power of Christ and his death on the cross, his sacrificial death for us, that God has graciously and impossibly brought us in. And all of that gospel power, he is saying, may that influence your souls, I'm praying that God would continue to transform and empower you because the gospel message is so true, right? Praying for strength, that's the first thing. The second content, right? The third point, I know, but the second content of Paul's prayer is praying for love. And that starts in, chapter, in verse 17, the second part of verse 17. If you look there, it says, let me read all of verse 17. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We said that. <clears throat> that you being rooted, <clears throat> excuse me, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Rooted and grounded in love. <clears throat> it's a great metaphor because he mixes two, and the apostle has a right to do that. We do that. We mix metaphors all the time. We get stuff wrong. But he's not wrong. He's just trying to say that in Christ, if Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith, what does that look like? It looks like us being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Rooted, you get it. That's an agricultural term. And the, the perfect tense right? The perfect passive participle here. It tells us that it is something that is done to us and that we're rooted. You get that? Like your roots go deep. You know, like even a pretty young tree, not a a sapling that just recently got planted, you know, that's only a couple of inches in diameter, but even a small tree, like, you know, we have a big old honking tree out there, right? But even half that size, if a tree is like, you know, just like less than a foot in diameter, right? Its roots are tremendously wide and deep. That's why it doesn't topple over in the rain or in the storms, right? In fact, it takes like hurricane winds or maybe a tornado to uproot even that tree. And if you, if you try to like move that tree, like you slammed your car into that tree, it's more likely that your car would be so damaged before the tree falls over. Tree gets some damage, right? But that's how what rooted means. It means that it is so stable, so secure because it's vast and deep. Well, the second term, grounded, is similar. It's an architectural term. It means that you have laid a foundation. And you know, you can guess as to how big a building is going to be by how deeply they dig down into the earth. You know, you go through downtown, right? And if the, you know, they leveled a building and they're going to build something, and you look down and you realize, dude, they're digging this trench that's like you know, 30, 40 feet deep. Well, it's because, see, the deeper the foundation, the taller the structure can be. Again, it's a question of foundation. It's a question of establishing deep roots, being well-grounded so that nothing can shake us, right? Nothing could tear us apart. I love that. 
You understand the significance. Paul is saying, I am praying that you guys would be strengthened, right? That was point two, that you be strengthened according to his glory, strengthened with power in the inner man, through the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling of Christ. And this, this strengthening would lead you to this, that you, being grounded and rooted in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Love is the second thing that he prays for, and he puts a tremendous emphasis on it. You probably heard this before, but like in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right, 22, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we talk about that is what the Spirit produces in us, the fruit that he produces in us, you realize in a lot of those lists, often the first thing is the one that, highlights the rest. And this is what uh, uh, Donald G. Barnhouse said when he was talking about that passage. And he says this, love is the key. And then this is how he explains it. He says joy, right, which is the next one in that list. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. There's no fruit of the Spirit without love. And this is, this is Paul's emphasis, that in all the things that the Spirit of God, that the indwelling of Christ, might fulfill in your inner man, in your heart, in your soul, in your minds, in your motives, what may develop there is that you are deeply rooted and essentially grounded in the love of Christ. And it causes him to expand on that, right? He says in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Verse 19 says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Four magnitudes that are given to us there. Magnitudes. It's the only word that I found that kind of makes sense to what these things are, right? They're they're dimensions. But if you say dimensions, it's always three dimensions. You can't go to four dimensions. That's weird, right? Because what's the fourth dimension? Light? Someone told me that. I I don't know what to think of that. That that might be true. That might be false. You you decide. But when we think of magnitudes, what we mean is that we're not just talking about like one measure this way, one measure this way, one measure this way. That's why we call that 3D, right? But we are talking about four and especially the, the ancient Hebrews would often use these four magnitudes to describe the width, the height, the depth, the, 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 the structure of something. So breadth means how wide something is. Length means how wide it goes this way. Height is how high it goes. And of course, depth is how low it goes. And when we think of more three-dimensionally, right, we just add height and depth and we just go, you just go negative or you go positive. Like we just make that one axiom, right? But that's the idea. And when he says that, he's saying that there is such an immense breadth, length, height, and depth to Christ's love. And you can fill in the gaps. If you're saying the breadth of Christ, how wide is his love? What's wide enough that he would lay down his life for the world? That's John 3.16. God so loved the world. He so loved with the breadth, the entire world, that he gave his one and only son. Right? That's the breadth of his love, the length of his love. How, how far will his love continue? Well, it will it continue into the end of the age. Right? It will take us into eternity. And like what Charles Spurgeon says, it is so long, talking about love and its length, 
It is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Christ's love will take us from here and will get us there. Not because we are good. Not because we're, we're, we're faithful. Not because we're capable. Not because we're anything. But because his love is a love that empowers. You notice love, power, all of these terms kind of melding together in the ministry and in the inner man. Height. Remember John 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. Right? That's a beautiful expression of how high does God's love go. It takes us to the very throne room, the depth of Christ's love. Philippians 2, 8 says that being found in human form, Jesus went so far, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what A.W. Tozer says about it. Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. See, this is the dimensions of Christ's love. And he's saying, I am praying Right? That you be strengthened in the inner man and that you'll be strengthened in the inner man in such a way that you being rooted and grounded in love might have the strength, the capacity to comprehend with all the saints. Notice with all the saints, his emphasis has been on not just individuals and their salvation, but the corporate right, body of believers that all of you have this in common that you will begin to comprehend even more deeply what is the breadth, the length, the height and depth of the love of Christ, right? And look at point C, that we might know Christ's love to be surpassing. The first part of verse 19, right? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, we're tempted to think, okay, if it surpasses knowledge, then we can't know it. So we'd be like, oh, what are you talking about? I have like spiritual brain freeze. Jesus loves me so much, right? That's not what we're talking about. It's incomprehensible, not in that it is so mysterious we'll never know it. No, it is surpassing knowledge. Meaning that as we come to know, and as you right now think, how much does Christ love us? Dude, he loves me so much that despite the fact that I'm a sinner, and I know my sin more than anyone else except for my Savior himself, he still casts his love on me, all right? That's what I know right now. I don't know, him, I don't know his love comprehensively. I, I just know what I know. And what I know is that he loves me with a love that no other being is capable of giving me. That's all I know now. But the point of his surpassing, of, of love surpassing knowledge, is that I will continue to grow in knowledge of Christ's love for me, and it'll still be beyond me. And I'll grow in eternity. Like for the next 10,000 years, when we're on the new heavens and the new earth, I will be like, Lord, I can't, I can't believe the depth of your love for me. And he goes, I know. And then there'll be more. The point is that I'll always exceed anything we could gather through the course of eternity. That is immense. It's powerful. It surges ahead of us. It can never be exhausted. We diminish God's love, right? When we say things like, oh, yeah, I I, yeah, I know. I know. We're talking about that because we're talking with some coaches, and they're saying the thing that they hate from their players is that, that I know. Like, hey, hey, when you're doing this, can you do this and stuff? Oh, okay, I know. It's like, 
what? Right? Like, you know. Oh, okay. Then maybe you should coach. Right? Like, you know how coaches get all mad. Or if you train people at your workplace or you have to tutor someone, you go, hey, no, no, you did this wrong. You need to do this way. And they go, oh, okay, I know. Right? That attitude drives you nuts. Because you're like, oh, well, if you know, then why am I ta- talking to you? Like, why are you asking me this question if you're going to tell me you know already? This is stupid, right? The humility that Paul is hoping that we have is a, por- is a source of power to comprehend how deep Christ's love is for us and then to recognize immediately you're not at the bottom of this. You've never gotten to the end of this. It continues on. We've got to move a little bit faster. This is, uh, wait a minute. Okay, yeah. So we did praying for love. And then here's our last, here's our last thing. Praying for fullness, right? Verse 19 through 21. It's a lot, but it's okay. The second part of verse 19, right? The first part said, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what we're talking about. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, we don't have time to say a lot about it, but let me say this, right? That last phrase that Paul attaches in his prayer in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of, of God, tells us that as we recognize Christ's love for us, the gospel love of God in Christ for us, the fact that God sent his son to die for us when we're yet sinners, right? This is Romans 5, and that's the evidence of God's love for us. So it wasn't when we were good. It wasn't when we were deserving. It wasn't because I was a good boy that Christ chose to die for me. No, he did it when I was the worst. And that's evidence of his love. So no matter what else happens in my life, I could always go back and say, what is the evidence of God's love for me? Christ died for me when I was the worst. So no matter what else happens in my life, his love, that's not a question, right? Well, as I begin to plumb the depths of his love, I find that it is deeper than I'll ever get to. That knowledge surpasses me. And as a result of that, of recognizing his love, growing in his love, growing in my understanding of what it means that God has saved me through Jesus Christ, and realizing I'll never get to the bottom of this, that's where I find my fulfillment, is what Paul is saying. That you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a tremendously ridiculous statement. That we will be filled right? That's great. With the fullness of God, that's impossible, right? And this is what, it, what he means by this. If I ran out to the ocean, some of our guys are going to the beach today, if you took like a cup or a bucket and you went out to the ocean and you looked across, the, you can't even see the end of it. We call it the horizon. You guys know, it doesn't end right there where your eyes can see, right? It just, it keeps curving away from you. There's land on the other side of that ocean, Right? It's endless and vast. And as I go there and I put a bucket in it and I take some of it out or I, or you, you, know, you plunge the bucket into it and all the water fills in, it's filled with the fullness that is the ocean. Not all of the ocean. It can't hold all of the ocean, but it certainly is filled with the fullness of the ocean, right? That's us. And you can do it again and again and again. And it can be filled and filled and filled. And that's the idea. There is fulfillment, Because love is powerful. You know that even as an unbeliever. I knew that even as an unbeliever, right? It has the power to consume you, to compel you, to captivate you for good or for evil. Falling on the wrong person, that's the thing you got to do, right? It's difficult for our hearts to define, but inexplicably essential for our heart satisfaction. This is how powerful love is, period. 
And it's not even God's love. It's just kind of the general concept of love. It's baked into our existence. So if we know rightly, with full knowledge, the experience and relationship, and it's that word that comes from Gnosko, the word for the knowledge of experience and relationship, not just rote memory. If we know God's love, the prayer is that then you become filled with his fullness. You, you get God. And you get why, right? You get why God is the way that God is. And you realize in your humility that you are not what you could be, but God receives you anyways. This leads him to the last thing, and we'll cover this very quickly. And it's the doxology to God's fullness. Verse 20 through 21, you've probably heard it. We sing it in different forms. Um, but it's a, it's a song of praise. It's a, it's a sentence on just praise to the Lord. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And I just want you to breathe that in. We can ask, we can imagine, and God is capable of even far more. According to the power at work within us. So all that power that he's been talking about, Holy Spirit's power, right? Christ indwelling power, the power to comprehend the love of Christ that is endless, the satisfaction and the fullness that comes from it, all of that, right? He says, according to all of that power that's within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Let it come back to God's glory forever and ever. And then he ends with the amen. Amen is the response, right? To close off a doxology or a prayer. And whenever we say amen, it means that we usher in with agreement. It means that we agree, count our vote in. We are with that ascription of praise or that prayer. It's the response of the congregation to say that, yes, I agree exactly with all that has been said. So that when we pray, that's what we're saying. We are all in. We agree. We believe. As we pray and we grow in power, in love, and in fulfillment, let us all be all in, right? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ.